Well, all around us, beloved, is the evidence of the creative power of God. And while the obvious is denied by millions who don't want to have to answer to a creator, least of all a divine creator, it is admired by other millions who by faith understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, because of the grace which the Christian has found in the eyes of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the renewing of his or her mind, you who believe in Christ are able to look out upon the beauty and the wonder of the creation and worship the Creator, the Lord God of the heavens. You believe the word when it declares in Psalm 33 and verses 6 and then 8 through 9, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood fast. Now, because he creates in a way that is in perfect harmony with all of his glorious attributes, the beauty of all those personal properties or qualities, that beauty is evident in the creation itself. As uh, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And that's why when we look into the creation, we find such variety in size and in shape and in color and in texture and in usefulness. We find all that in the creation because of the God who is the creator. It constantly puts on display the goodness of God, the, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The creation constantly puts those things before us. Now, men and women don't see this uh, obvious evidence in the creation as they should because of their sinful nature. That nature uh, compels them to willfully deny the evidence that's set before them. As Paul says in Romans, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So the evidence is there. It's obvious. And it's seen, but men don't want to look at it. They don't want to acknowledge it. But it's not only true that they don't acknowledge what's there, they abuse what's there. Because of their sinfulness, men and women tend to mar and to abuse the creation itself. 
We read in Romans chapter 8 that the creation itself cries out. And it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is looking to, to, to display that glory. And yet it is held back by the sinfulness of man and the curse that rests on it. But what we know from the testimony of the word of God and the evidence around us is that there is a clear witness that God is the first efficient cause of all the creatures from the greatest to the least. They are the product of his power, of his wisdom, and of his goodness, Richard Baxter says. Now, this witness from heaven is very clear. God is the one who's made all this. God is the one who has, has established it. We read in Revelation 4 of the song of the 24 elders. And this is what they say there. This is Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Outside of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., there stands a bronze statue on a granite base. It's the statue of Professor Joseph Henry. He was the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. He was a world-renowned physicist. And the, state, the statue was raised by order of the United States Congress in recognition of his scientific achievements in 1883. When the Henry statue was dedicated that year at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, various dignitaries were invited to take part, and there was a big assembly at the, on the Smithsonian grounds. And the ceremonies began with a prayer. And a portion of that prayer is, is before you there in the notes, and I'd like to share it with you this afternoon. Eternal and almighty God, creator, preserver, and governor of the world, we have gathered here to adore thy holy name, to implore thy divine protection, and to invoke thy blessing. We bless thee that having brought the physical universe to its present perfection, and made it the vehicle of reflecting and expressing thy transcendent perfections. We bless thee that thou hast never left thyself without a witness, even in the darkest period of human history, that wherever men have sought the Lord, he has been found always to be not far from any of us, seeing that he is imminent in all existence and in all life, and that in him we live and move and have our being. We bless thee that thou hast in these latter days sent into the physical universe many intelligent and earnest students who in various departments are investigating the secrets of nature and interpreting the methods of thy sublime working throughout the vast areas of time and space. You can kind of tell as you, as you hear this prayer that this is a pretty intellectual prayer. 
But the reason I'm reading it to you is I want you to, to, to hear what this individual is saying. He then goes on and says, Especially we thank thee for the spotless example of thy servant, that's Joseph Henry, this physicist, whose illustrious career is to be commemorated by the monument we are now unveiling. We bless thee that he was as humble and simple in his Christian faith as he was great in his intellectual achievements or preeminent in his worldwide fame. We pray thee that his memory as a Christian philosopher may be preserved, that his influence for good may be ever extended, and that his example may be followed. And the prayer ends with these words. And now, in anticipation of the general judgment, when in the resurrection the perfected church shall enter into enter the new heavens and the new earth of the perfected physical universe, we ascribe unto thee at once the Lord of nature and of grace, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might unto our God that sitteth upon the throne under the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. And you think of this prayer being offered in the context of an assembly of scientists and political leaders. The Congress is there. Representatives from the Congress are present. Um, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, people from the scientific world from all over the world are present at the dedication of this statue. And this prayer, acknowledging in the context of scientific achievement the creative work of Almighty God, was offered by someone many of you have heard of before, Dr. Charles Hodge was the one who was delivering this prayer on this occasion. And his invitation to the ceremony and the Christian testimony of this respected physicist being honored just demonstrates once again the foolishness of the idea that the concept of a divine creator of the world is incompatible with the reasoning and rational scientific mind. This man is a renowned physicist. And what is Charles Hodge giving thanks for? His simple faith in the creative power of God and the work of Jesus Christ. So you see those two things side by side here. And I think in the end it proves that when men make that claim about the, the, the mind uh, and the rational thinker, it's just an excuse for their own unbelief. Now, <clears throat> turn your attention to our text because all of this highlighting the creative power and glory of God is important to the background of the comments that we want to make on this passage in the time we have left. Our text is Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, for the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now look at this. The Lord who created the universe 
and everything in it, with all its wonder and all its complexity, with all its beauty and all its interest, says here, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this in the context of Isaiah, like many prophetic passages, seems to have a lesser and a greater uh, fulfillment, uh, what we might call a secondary and a primary fulfillment. In its immediate context, it speaks to the return of Israel from the years of captivity in Babylon and the reestablishment of the nation in Israel. Secondly, it finds a fulfillment in the establishment of the New Testament church, militant and triumphant, as Matthew Henry says, referring to its establishment and its blessing, even down to this present hour, in which the Lord is calling his people out of the world, bringing them into his church and into the fellowship of believers, and blessing us. But ultimately, its grand, full, and glorious fulfillment is to be found at the end of the age of grace in the joys and the blessings of heaven and the eternal kingdom. Whether you believe it's literal or a description of the complete overhaul of the world as we now know it spiritually, the culmination of the work is described here. And as this is the fullness of the thing, it's that that I want to consider in the time we have left. That's not to say that the other fulfillments are not important and aren't worthy of study. They are. Now, one of the difficult aspects of this passage is the wide range of opinion that exists over the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And the question is, is it to be understood literally or is it to be understood figuratively or, or spiritually? Um, the great spiritual minds of history haven't been able to settle on the answer of that. And I imagine right here in this room, there are differences of opinion among all of us. So we're not going to try to solve that this afternoon. I'm not going to try to convince you one way or the other. I'm just going to make a few general statements. All I'll say is that it is important that we don't set our expectations on the fulfillment of Scripture according to what we may believe is within the realm of possibility or probability. Because we don't have a very good grasp on that. We don't have much of an imagination when it comes to what God can do and how he can do it. It does us well to remember that events are in the hands of the one who's able to do abundantly more than all we can think or ask. So if we're going to say this can only be a spiritual fulfillment, that's fine. But don't make that decision based on the fact that because there can't be a new heaven and a new earth. I only say that because there are some commentators who say, well, that can't possibly be what is meant here, an actual new heaven and a new earth. Because we already have one and we're not going to get another one. So this is all we get. And uh, the reasoning for that is somewhat suspect. Just be assured that there's no concern for worry. And what I mean by that, the God who made this universe and all that is in it can handle the job to your satisfaction 
whatever that job is. So if you think that this is talking about the creation of a whole new earth and a whole new heaven, don't worry about it. God can handle that. The one who did what he did in the beginning when there was nothing and made it out of nothing, he can take care of that. And if you think it's a spiritual renovation or you think that it's an allegorical thing, he can do that too. All I can say is if you like this one, you're really going to like the new one. If you like these heavens, you're going to love the new ones. If you like this earth, you're going to love the new one. Your God is no less today than what he was when he made the world and everything in it. And with that same creative authority, he will bring forth his promise and have his word uh, fulfilled. Now, Revelation 21, 1 through 3 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Many are of the opinion that this is already underway, and that it began with the gospel being preached by Christ. But be that as it may, Peter was looking for something more, and he spoke of it in his apostle, epistle excuse me, in 2 Peter 3, verse 13. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So whatever one's convictions are in regard to these things, two things are vital. First, that we are confirmed in our belief that if God would, if it were his pleasure to do so, he could, whatever it is. Whatever he wills, he can do. He can do all his holy will. Uh, If he's to let this universe go and melt into oblivion and create a new one, he's certainly able to do that at his pleasure. And secondly, It's essential that you be prepared in Jesus Christ for however he chooses to fulfill his word. It's tragic to think of lost souls bickering over whether certain passages are metaphorical, allegorical, or literal as the day of Christ's return and judgment descends upon them. Some years ago, um, I had uh, the opportunity to talk with some men that I was working with, young men, we were sitting out during our lunch break at work, and they found out that I was studying to be a preacher, and they had all kinds of questions about the end of the world. And um, that conversation dragged on over several lunch periods and uh, lunch breaks, and finally I realized the real problem, and I brought this point to them. And I said, it doesn't matter how this is going to unfold if you're not ready for it. And when I challenged them with that, um, they began to lose interest in the subject and we stopped talking about it. Um, They didn't want to go there, and yet that's where they really needed to go. Personally, I believe that we will all be stunned and elated at the way all of this transpires. And right now, I'm convinced that We don't have really any better handle on this than the people who loved God and cared about his word at his first coming 
but had so underestimated what he was doing and how he was going to do it. I think we're, we're at that same point, but we'll have the understanding when we need it. Now he goes on and says, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And this is difficult terminology to fit into the spiritual interpretation. And some of the attempts to do that are very imaginative. But the point is that as the kingdom of God progresses in the heart and the life of the believer, this world and its worldliness certainly fades and passes away. And however we're to understand it, it won't be like Israel after they left Egypt. We're not going to be pining after our leeks and cucumbers from the old world, whatever that brings us to. Uh, there'll be neither treasure, treasured in mind, nor fetched up, we're told here. Now, to keep within our time limits, I'm just going to move on to uh, sort of the application of this, which is in the next verse. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, the Lord says. All we can do, beloved, is underestimate what's called for here. It is a call to let all that you are in Christ, all the capacity you possess as a Christian, to, to let it be filled with gladness or brightness and then to do a little jig. And I do a little jig here for you, but uh, my legs won't support that anymore. But the call here is to do that now and forever. You're to think about what your God, the creator, is creating as he brings all this into fruition. And it is to fill all that you are as a Christian with joy. And that brightness and that joy is to lead you to dancing now and forever. Lead you to it in the expectation of the enjoyment of what he will create when all this comes together. At the moment, you and I are surrounded by sorrows and the disappointments of this world. Thankfully, they're, they're mitigated by the place we have in Christ and in his kingdom on earth right now. And we praise God for that place and the joy that it brings. But we often find ourselves, I think, when we cast our eyes over the busyness and vanity of the world, and we say with Solomon, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a real temptation to put your expectations in the artificial pro progress of mankind, and many do that. I say artificial progress because uh, though the world has progressed scientifically to the point where you're all carrying powerful computers in your pockets or in backpacks or whatever. It's employed daily. It is employed daily, that powerful computer, to dishonor parents, to lie, to steal, to commit adultery, and to covet. So how far have we come? It's daily used that way. Constantly used that way. So yes, we've progressed scientifically. But spiritually, we're where we've always been desperately in need of a Savior. Just this past week, someone employed artificial intelligence, the next big step forward, to make a threat against the children here in one of our local schools and university place. How's that progress? The idea that if we just get smart enough, if we just have the right tools available, 
men and women will be better than they are, that the corruption of original sin will somehow be overcome, that we'll become too wise, too civilized, too sophisticated to sin is sheer madness. There's no support or evidence for such an idea in the history of mankind. Believers don't place their joyful expectations in the ruinous hands of men and women, but we put it in the creator God. You're the children of Abraham by faith, and together we're looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so, beloved, we draw upon the joy that lies ahead in what the creator is creating. In Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And notice this, the gladness and joy are bound up in that which God creates. It's hard to put this into words, and I need to do it quickly here. But it's a matter of God's righteous jealousy that he requires his people to be filled with this brightness and joy because of the power and the goodness and the wisdom and the justice and the love of his creative work and what it results in. You and I are bound to be filled with joy because of what God has done in us through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is bringing to us because of our trust in him. We are bound to. It's a matter of his jealousy. Look what I am doing for you. Look what I have done for you. Look what I am bringing you to. How can there be anything but fullness of joy? How can you do anything but dance a little jig? Did you ever see a child so excited about something that they just couldn't hold still? That they sort of shake all over with anticipation and sometimes they stomp their feet and they're just so excited? That's this idea of a jig. We're so excited about what God has done for us that we can't hold still. We can't hold ourselves against it because it's, it's the prospects are so beautiful. And I'm just going to go right to the end so that we can close. But do you see what it says? You, beloved, are to be made gladness. You are to be made a gladness. Do you find that language difficult? What does that mean? You're going to be made a gladness. We know what it is to be made glad, and we know what it is to be joyful, but what does it mean for us to be gladness? What it means is you, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when your God looks upon you, he delights in you. You in Christ are his delight. And if that doesn't bring you joy, I don't know what will. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, where he's talking about Christ, and he says he gave himself for us that he might present to himself a bride in whom he can delight, because the bride is pure and beautiful. And you and I have become beautiful and pure and righteous in the eyes of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And dressed in his righteousness, we are now his delight. He, we are his gladness to see us in that state. What a blessed state.
Thank God for it. It is a matter of his great grace that we have that hope in our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who are we to bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Who are we, Lord, to be a delight, a gladness? Lord, we are what we are because of your grace, your mercy, your love for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would not let us be borne down by the world and by the burden of the things of this world, but let us, Lord, rise above them, rejoicing, dancing in heart at all that we have and all that we are in Christ. Father, please be present with us. Bless your word to us. Bless this prospect to us. And may we go from here realizing that we're headed to a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And we have a place there because of the righteousness that we have through Jesus Christ. Let that be the thankful theme of our hearts, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.